This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Tuesday night, special Tuesday edition, April 26th, the year of our Lord, 2022. Hey, I got a question for you. What happens if there's a problem and no one does anything about it? Well, stick around college football for a little while. It looks like you're about to find out. We're jam-packed. We're high atop a picturesque downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Beautiful. A little bit on the cool side, but beautiful today. Where are we going tonight on the show? Where are we going? Where is the sport going? A lot of questions that need answers. Your boldness is back. We have got bold takes from this side of the room to that side of the room about this year in college football. You claim you would put money on these, so we are going about five deep again tonight on that front. And we've got a mailbag that also takes us coast to coast. We're going to talk about LSU quarterbacks. We're going to talk about Texas receivers. We're going to talk about home field advantage in college football. All sorts of different things tonight and breaking news just in the past hour, so we're going to get to it. Believe me, we're going to get to it. They are watching us tonight in Dearborn, Michigan. They're watching us in Boulder City, Nevada. Atlanta, GA is tuned in, as is Rock Valley, Iowa. With that in mind, I have a statement I'd like to read. So you, if you're just getting off work, you know maybe you haven't been uh, tuned in to the goings-on in the college athletics world today. NCAA President Mark Emmert stepping down as of June 2023. You look at that, maybe if you're just a casual fan, not to be confused with the casual, and you may say, oh, that's big news. Hmm, wonder what went into that. If you are part of Pate State, or if you're even remotely familiar with the lens through which I view this sport, you thought, he's going to run, isn't he? That's what the statement is about. <clears throat> just allow me about 30 seconds here. Let there be no confusion. I want the role of NCAA president. My first act... Detach college football from the NCAA. My second act, appoint myself college football commissioner and then throw up the deuces to NCAA headquarters, never to look back. My qualifications, I really want it. I actually watch college athletics and love them, which is a plus these days, especially in the bloated bureaucracy that has become the NCAA in college athletics. I'm better than anyone you have. I welcome a debate on that statement. In conclusion, my balls are in your court, and I anxiously await your acceptance. That's the end of the statement. Let's get into the show tonight. Big news there, though. Mark Emmert stepping down as of, what, next year, April, May, June, a little over a year from now. So I'm sure we'll have plenty to say about that. But as for tonight, I, um, Colin, I guess this is your good end point here. I always want you to know when you're watching the show, you're not wasting your time. We don't put much filler in here. We, we think if it's on the show, it has some meat on the bone. We would rather just end the show 20 minutes into it than give you filler. But why listen to me tell you that when we can listen to other people tell you that? So Jack Swarbrick, most of you know who that is. If you don't, that's the Notre Dame athletic director, very influential power player in the world of college football. He sat down with sportsillustrated.com. I think it was Pat Forty specifically 
uh, within the last week. And he had some interesting things to say. I'll tell you how all this ties in in just a second. First off, on the future of college football, he said, there's always been sort of a spectrum, and I want to stress that everything along that spectrum is valid. It's not a criticism. On one end of the spectrum, you license the school name and, listen to this part, you run an independent business that's engaged in sports. The other end of the spectrum, you're integrated into the university in terms of decision-making and requirements, and some would follow that. Well, that's an interesting parallel. That surely doesn't sound like four super conferences like everyone had assumed for a while. Hey, what about some collateral damage? Jack Swarbrick speaks up again. Quote, I hate to see it. That's going to be interesting to see how the federal government approaches it. If all of this revenue is disproportionately coming to men, even if you didn't set it up that way, how does Title IX analyze that? This starts to sound more familiar by the second, but Jack Swarbrick, not done. The third quote, in response to who's in charge here? <clears throat> We're not getting leadership from the NCAA. It's going to have to come from elsewhere. It's interesting to see how challenging it is to get the university presidents, think you know where this is going, really on board with anything, to work together. It's not that they're resistant to it, they've just got too many things going on. Don't be bothered with quite literally saving the sport, there are more important things to do. Those are my words, not Jack Swarbrick's. Now, if that sounded familiar to you, it's because you were probably watching our show last month. And if you weren't, let's refresh your memory. Roll it, Colin. But there will be essentially two worlds that exist. One of the worlds is one that maintains the academic attachment, the true student-athlete model, and the other acknowledges what it sees as an inevitability or a reality at that point and says, eh, some of them really didn't come here to play no school, did they? So you know what? Let's stop pretending. And also, that group over there, who wants essentially a semi-pro model, they're also going to look around and they're going to say, right now, this is chaos. Let's get to where those guys can have employment status attached to them. And however we have to do that, we do it. But not only that, then they can collectively bargain. Uh, they have at their disposal now probably TV revenue distribution. A lot of things open up. A lot of possibilities open up. But here's what it coincides with. It coincides with being honest about what we're doing here and being honest about the fact that this is about football more than academics. And we're not going to pretend like it's otherwise. Also, you got to keep in mind, there's this pesky little thing standing in the way of a lot of this right now called Title IX. You want to know how you get away from that? You get away from it by not being attached to the university in an academic fashion at all. You're just a brand. You are licensing, essentially, the branding of that school at that point. But what he has now is he has a contract, in turn, that he has signed. Coming out of high school, goes wherever he goes, and you're not just going to move around. And there's a lot more structure in NIL now. We can do it legislatively because we now are acknowledging that you are an employee. Well, here's the thing. There are going to be some programs that are willing to go down that road. There are going to be some conferences that are willing to go down that road. There are going to be others that aren't. You could see a world down the road where it's not so much there's the SEC, there's the Big 12, there's the Big 10. It could be there's the semi-pro version of college football and there's the classical version of college football over here. Yeah, we're live again now. So how do you feel about that? To be clear, what Jack Swarbrick said this week and what we said last month is the direction we're headed 
is not the direction that people have painted on a chalkboard for you over the past five to 10 years, where we're either gonna be three super conferences or five super conferences, and let's talk about what the structure of the playoffs gonna be. The reason no one's had a definitive answer on that stuff is because that's not what the conversations have been behind the scenes. Like I told you, you're not wasting your time when you're listening to us talk about this. I wouldn't have run my mouth to that degree a month ago if I didn't know what I was talking about. Now the Notre Dame athletic director kind of echoed that sentiment. He's not the only one. Everybody behind the scenes is talking about this. And to be clear, if you didn't understand what I said there or what he said, they are talking about a world, his estimate is the mid-2030s, but really that's a guess, wherein you don't have the Pac-12 or the SEC and the Big Ten. What you have is you have two groups. You have one group of teams, of universities, if you want to call them that, that have decided we're all in. We're going to treat the players as employees. We're going to give them revenue sharing. They're going to collectively bargain. It will essentially be a mini National Football League. It will be a semi-pro league, and they won't pretend it's not. And all they'll do is they will license the ability to use the brand of South Carolina or Florida or Texas, but it will not be the traditional college football that you've known. Then, predictably, as we said a month ago, there will be other universities that say, we want nothing to do with that. Here, whether it be Stanford or Notre Dame, wherever, we will always have an academic attachment. These will always be student athletes. We are not going down that road because it is not the spirit of what college athletics is supposed to be. And by the way, if you want to know where I land on this, it's with them. It's not with the semi-pro model. This is a mess. Been coming for a while. But if you want to know why no one in that room in Indianapolis last January could arrive at a conclusion on what the playoff format should be, it's because there are infinitely bigger issues in play than just whether you should have eight teams or 12 teams. That's what's kept a lot of the talk shows busy. We haven't really done a whole lot of that on this show, only because every time I do, the iJosh lights up or my DMs light up with someone who um, is wearing a suit that's worth more than me working in a building in Indianapolis or Birmingham or Charlotte, and they're saying, mm -mm, don't even waste your time with it. That's not what we're talking about behind the curtain right now. So now that we've got that out of the way, how do you feel about it? Do you like where college football is going? Do you like where college athletics are going? You got a lot of these coaches, not just in football, retiring, telling you they want to spend more time with their families. They don't like where it's headed. That's the end result. They don't like where it's headed. So we can talk about the problems all we want to. We can talk about what's going on right now all we want to, but there's one question on everyone's mind. The real question on everyone's mind is, how's it all going to shake out? What's college football ultimately going to look like? In atmospheric science, when a tornado comes through, the National Weather Service goes out the next day and the survey team looks at the damage and they give an assessment, EF2, EF3, EF4. The reason no one has a definitive answer for you right now as to where college football is going to end up is because we're in the tornado. It's not past. We're in it right now. NIL's out of control. You've got the transfer portal out of control. You've got conference realignment. You've got folks smack down in the middle of restructuring their television deals. You've also got playoff expansion and what that's going to look like. That's what it's like to be in the tornado. No one knows. Not even the conference commissioners, not the athletic directors, not the president of the NCAA, whomstever that will be. No one knows. No one has a well-reasoned and articulated response. So they all just shrug their shoulders. But that's the problem. It's okay for me to shrug my shoulders or you to shrug your shoulders. We're not in charge of this stuff. They are. It's unacceptable for a sport this great to have leadership this poor. And to be clear, I'm not talking about the NCAA. Anyone who observes college athletics has long since gotten away from the notion that the NCAA is properly equipped to legislate and govern college athletics. 
it's the conference commissioners, and it's television executives. Make no mistake about it, those are the two entities who run college football. It's up to them. Everybody agrees we got a problem. It's like we're all on the same bus, and it's barreling towards the edge of a cliff. But the problem is, while we're in the passenger seats, you look to your left, and you look to your right, and the conference commissioners and TV executives are sitting right there with you. No one's in the driver's seat. No one who has the responsibility to have their hands on the wheel has their hands on the wheel because they all look at you, especially conference commissioners right now, not saying they're bad people. I'm saying they're good people making bad decisions. And they tell you, well, it's really just my job to look out for my conference. That's great. And that's technically correct. Let me ask you something. You can build the fanciest neighborhood you want to. If the city it is in burns down around the neighborhood, what happens to the property value? In fact, what's the point of having the neighborhood? Like, do we really need to go over this? There are all kind of baseline metaphors for this. Do we really need to remind folks what happened? The value of having a platform of college football and that sport being healthy, like we grew up knowing it, for example, is mandatory. It's a requirement for you to cash in on the checks that you want to cash in on or for your, your brand's flag to fly at the level you want it to fly at. We're showing you right now a lot of the estimates, if you're watching on YouTube, about the average payout per team in a uh, supposed 12-team playoff model. Like All this just assumes things. It assumes something that shouldn't be assumed. So while we're all talking about warnings, while everyone's busy issuing a warning, I'd like to issue one to conference commissioners and to TV executives, because those are the only people really equipped to get this thing back on the rails. You are badly mistaken. And for a while now, you have assumed something is a constant when it's actually a variable. And that is me, that's the folks watching this show, it's fans. It is your P1 demographic, it is your hardcores. Many an organization has mistakenly taken for granted in the past and they have suffered the consequences, i.e. NASCAR, i.e. pro wrestling in the late 90s. Don't do the same thing. You assume that the passion that you've come to expect You've assumed that the attendance figures, you've assumed that the viewership numbers will always be there. And from this point forward, you can make any kind of changes you want to because they'll show up. No, they won't. No, they won't automatically show up. Ask the average fan. You guys aren't amongst them. I am. I talk to them every day. Ask the average fan how they feel about the sport now and how they feel about it 10 years from now. And then ask them, do you expect yourself to be as hardcore college football fan in 2032 as you are in 2022? The most optimistic among them kind of go, eh. and the more realistic among them go, probably not, I'm just enjoying it while I can. Don't ever assume that hardcore college football fans are always hardcore college football fans. Just because something has been does not always mean it will be. And you need to also understand this, what you guys do. I should be preaching to the choir here. You should be finishing my sentences, but I'll say it anyway. There have never been more entertainment options on the face of this planet in any civilization than there are today and in this world moving forward. If you think that you can take folks coming to your watering hole for granted, just cause you happen to have something they grew up liking, you need to understand the only thing that keeps them liking what they have liked is that thing at least somewhat resembling what they grew up liking. If the sport becomes something unrecognizable and they look at it and say, and in my college football, they just walk away and they may not come back. So I'm looking around right now and I wish I could paint you a more rosy scenario. I don't think it's too late. So, so that's the optimistic side of me. 
But what has to happen is you have to have conference commissioners and television executives step up and say, we're supposed to be the smartest ones in the room. It's up to us to put our hands on the wheel and to guide the sport back into safer waters. And then once we take care of all this stuff, once we get out of the tornado, then we can start jockeying for position again. And then we can try and carve ourselves out over here and get our niche based the way we want it to. You've got to have the sport. You've got to have the foundation. You've got to have the stage before you start writing the play. And you're taking it for granted. And I'm trying to tell you as bluntly as I can, you shouldn't. It may not be there by the time 20, 30, or 35 rolls around. So that is my passioned plea from the college football fan to the folks that actually should be running this thing, but have let it get far too out of control. Never the kind of chaos and never the kind of unrest that we deal with in college football at Academy Sports and Outdoors. Never. In fact, listen to this. I actually wrote some of this down. I couldn't memorize it. That's how much there are. If you want grills, they got Pit Boss and Traeger. If you want coolers, they got Yeti, they got Igloo. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. Bikes, Ozone, Schwinn, many more. They've got kayaks, they got outdoor apparel. They obviously have baseball, football gear, golfing gear, any kind of gear you need for anything outdoors, tents. Uh, that has been established on this show. Academy Sports and Outdoors is our exclusive partner. I get to say that because we didn't need anyone else. Academy does everything that we need done. They get the show to you free of charge. There is no paywall. You don't click on the link for Late Kick and it says, log in or pay $9.95 a month. There is none of that because there is Academy Sports and Outdoors. And I know you guys, so I know that you need outdoor gear anyway. I know you guys don't stay locked up in your basement. That is not my audience. That's not the way we roll. And so before you head outside, head to either Academy Sports and Outdoors or if you don't want to go to the store, academy.com. And they will take care of you A to Z and everything in between. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. They are watching us tonight in Huntsville, Alabama. They're tuned in in Hamilton. They're tuned in. Well, there's a lot of Hamiltons. I would assume Hamilton, Georgia is tuned in, but also Hamilton up in Canada tuned in. Charlotte, North Carolina, producer Jesse stopped by for about four hours, I would say the layover was today. But those are just check-ins. Every now and then, one of you sends video evidence that you are watching the show, and I always like to show it when we can. And interestingly enough, another check-in has come by way of our great waterways in this country. I can only tell you this is on the Mississippi River. If you're listening on podcast, we have another, what would we call this, a cargo ship, a freighter, a container ship? I don't see containers though. Anyway, a barge is moving, I would say, up or down the mighty Mississippi River, the old man, 
as Chevy Chase would tell you. And we appreciate the check-in here. I cannot tell you which city. We have to maintain the anonymity of our viewers, especially if they are doing something on the clock that they're not exactly cleared to do legally. But there we go. We have made our way onto the Mississippi River. Like Huckleberry Finn before us, look at us, just charting our way. We have a lot of boldness in our audience, don't we? You saw video evidence there. But if that's not enough for you, I got one, two, three, four, I got about five more of the boldest takes that you had to offer. So here's your endpoint, Colin. Boldness. This is the third installment of some of our audience's boldest opinions that they claim they put their own money on in 2022 college football. We start with the defending national champs, the Georgia Bulldogs, even though it's impossible to defend a championship if they can't take it from you. But 21 champs says Georgia's going to be back in the playoff again. This didn't sound too bold to me, but it did give me an excuse to talk about something with Georgia. So this is like a three on the boldness scale, maybe even less. Uh, but Georgia's got an excellent shot. I was looking at some of the odds today, overwhelming odds to win the SEC East, and they'll probably be back in Atlanta. We know all that. It's not wildly bold, but what is different is the kind of Georgia that could make the playoff. You need to follow me here for a second because it, it'll sound convoluted. It's really not. Several different versions of Georgia would be capable of making the playoff this year. If Georgia is as good or better than they were last year, it stands to reason they'll probably make the playoff. If they're not as good as they were last year, there's still a pretty wide gap between where Georgia was and wherever the next best team in the SEC East probably is. So it stands to reason they could fall off a little bit from last year and they could still run the slate undefeated in the regular season. Even if they drop one in Atlanta may still have a good enough resume to get in, but that team would just be far more vulnerable once it got to the playoff. There are many examples of this. Georgia's trying to be the fifth team to repeat as college football playoff appearances go. Uh, Bama's done it. Oklahoma's done it. Ohio State's done it. So now Georgia's trying to do it. It's not getting there that would be the tallest task. That's why the prediction in and of itself is not bold. But think about 2014 FSU. I know there wasn't a playoff the year before. So FSU wins the title the year before. And then they went undefeated in the regular season the next year. But everyone who watched that FSU team knew it was just a product of a bakery soft schedule because once they got in the playoff, they got exposed immediately. Even though they brought a lot of the same players back, Jameis Winston was still the quarterback, even FSU fans knew this team would get run out of the building by last year's team. We're a sitting duck. And they were. Actually, I think, ironically enough, they lost to Oregon. So you fast forward a few years. Bama wins the title in 15. They go back to the championship game in 2016. Even though they lost to Clemson, I actually thought that 2016 team may have been better than the 2015 team. They were sharp. They were ultra hungry all year. So which version of Georgia do we get this year? Do we get like the 2014 FSU version or do we get a 2016 Alabama version? That is the most interesting facet to me. It's not bold to say they'll make the playoff. Do they make the playoff looking every bit as hungry and every bit as good as they did last year? That would be a little bolder because of the consequences of success, as we talk about on the show a lot. Next up, we're going to ratchet up the boldness scale quite a bit here. Bubba said, well, did he ask? Yeah, Bubba said, NC State only loses one game, finishes the regular season top six, and gets close to making the college football playoff. Obviously, you look up what you think about NC State. Kind of, like I said the other day, kind of an anonymous program, not for you, those of you in Raleigh, but kind of an anonymous program nationally. So you know about Devin Leary. You know they play good defense. And you would be right on both accounts. 
they were a top 20 defensive unit last year. Return mostly intact. Uh, they don't have to worry about any complacency there because they didn't really accomplish anything last year in terms of winning you know, something that you can put in a trophy case. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt Dave Doran will have them ready. But this is not just about, okay, well, can they beat Clemson? Or it's not even about, you know, is the team solid? Because we didn't say our prediction is for them to finish top 20. That'd be good. We're talking about them bordering on playoff contention here. To do that, you have to handle the altitude that no one on that team has dealt with yet. Doesn't mean they're incapable of it. It's first time for everything. But I'll get back to that in a second. But I don't see any buzzsaw team in their conference. I don't see a buzzsaw team, therefore, on their schedule. And what that means is if you've got the kind of defense that I highly expect they'll have, and, you know, who are you going up against? You're going up against uh, Florida State, Clemson, Virginia Tech. You know their ACC schedule. There's no offense you look at and you go, ooh, I don't even think our defense is going to match up there. Quite the opposite. Most teams on their schedule are looking and saying, we got to go up against that NC State defense. That in and of itself is something to be proud of. But then, let's just say for argument's sake, they start off 1, 2, 3, 4. Let's say they start off 4-0. Don't overlook that Texas Tech game, by the way. They start off 4-0 and then they go to Clemson to start October and they win like they did last year. They beat Clemson on the road. Okay, then you'd be 5-0. and You still got over half of your season left to go. You'd have Florida State. You'd go to Syracuse. You'd have Virginia. You'd have Wake. Really tough back-to-back there. You'd have Boston College after that. At Louisville, at North Carolina. The thing about trying to make the playoff is even that November 19th game at Louisville, you look at that and you say, well, if we're good enough to beat Clemson, we should be handling Louisville. Should is the... Optimum word there. Because a lot of potential playoff contenders, when they get into November, end up not doing things they should do. What is it? Well, it's the altitude. It's the difference in walking the tightrope 10 feet above the ground versus 10 stories above the ground. It's still you. Balance still works the same. The tightrope is the exact same width. But all of a sudden, because you know what the consequences are if you fall, human nature is a funny thing. The human mind is a funny thing. So this is bold to a point of seven on the one to 10 scale to suggest they finish top six, not because I think they're incapable, just because I know how hard it is to be a contender all the way through as opposed to just being one through Halloween. A lot of folks still in the mix at Halloween time that aren't in the mix uh, come Pearl Harbor Day, which I know because it's my birthday. I don't want to have said that, but we're live. We move on. It gets personal here with the next one. Asphalt Cowboy. His bold prediction is that my beloved Arkansas is not going to be as serious as I think they are. Now, what he did not do is follow it up with how serious do I think Arkansas is? A lot of you have a misconception about me and Arkansas. The misconception is not that I love them. I absolutely love them. The misconception is I, I think some of you honestly believe I've predicted them to win the national championship this year. I have not gone that far yet. But what I have done is I have painted a, a pretty clear picture of my impression of the program. So to be clear, if we don't know what my expectation for Arkansas is this year, I'm not going to give you a predicted record in April, mainly because it would be dumb. But what I will tell you is I expect this team to be at least as good as last year's squad. Defensively, I think they'll be better than last year's squad. Unlike a certain colleague of mine, I believe K.J. Jefferson is and will be a top three quarterback in the SEC this year. Uh, but if not, still a very, very solid player there. Jaden Hazelwood, plugging him in, plugging guys like Drew Sanders in, it's going to make an impact. 
I also highly expect that they have one of the toughest schedules in the country. And because of that, this could be a top 10 caliber team and still lose multiple games. It's all relative. You are not what your schedule says you are in college football 100% of the time. So I expect them to be in that nine win range, but with an opportunity to compete in every game. So it wouldn't shock me if they won double digit games. It wouldn't shock me if they won eight games. This is the kind of schedule where you could win eight games and I could still have you power rated like number 14 or 15 in the country. Those are my expectations for Arkansas. Now, if you tell me they're going to fall short of that, I'm telling you that's a nine on the boldness scale. They're not falling short of that. Unless they suffer catastrophic amounts of injuries, they're not going to fall short of that. They can lose to Cincy in week one and still I don't think they'd fall short of it. I don't predict them to. But I'm just telling you, I think it's about more than 2022 with them. But if you're talking about 2022, this is going to be a really good team. I keep saying the same thing about Arkansas that I'll reiterate and I say it about Ole Miss and I just think they're a prisoner of their conference when it comes to expectations. Now, when you play the game, expectations don't matter. Predictions don't matter. We all know that. But this team has a chance to take the world by surprise, not because they're going to show potential that you didn't know about. They may just upset a few people you didn't think they were capable of upsetting. The potential's there. If that team was in the ACC, you would see them on magazine covers all over newsstands, all over every grocery store in town in the South but they're in the SEC West. And so the first thing you think is, they can't beat Bama. What if they don't? You could be the number two team in the country and not beat Alabama. So what does that really mean? So Arkansas, yeah, you think they're going to fall short of my expectations. That's a nine on the boldness scale. Next up, we head to the Big Ten. Interesting submission here. Jacob Scott Ringwald said, Michigan's going to win the Big Ten. I don't think they're necessarily better than Ohio State, but I think their schedule is more favorable. Well, Here's the problem with that. If you think their schedule is more favorable to the tune of separation by two games, then I'll listen to you. But unless Michigan goes into the horseshoe undefeated and Ohio State's already got two conference losses, that doesn't really matter because the tiebreaker would come into effect. So I'm looking at their schedule right now. If you're watching on YouTube, yeah, it is a favorable schedule. They don't leave home until October. Uh, They go back to back Iowa and Indiana on the road. Then they got Penn State and Michigan State back-to-back, but with a bye week in there. Uh, They close it out with a three-game stretch before the end-of-season rivalry game against Ohio State, about as fortuitous as you can. They go to Rutgers, they got Nebraska, and they got Illinois. So here's the big question with Michigan. Several of them, actually. Uh, Number one, what we can't know is where is the program collectively, mentally, after the whole Jim Harbaugh thing? Can't know that. I'm not not suggesting anything. I'm saying we flat out cannot know whether he fully checked back in. Remember, they lost both coordinators. McDonald went back to the Ravens. Gaddis went to Miami. They lost both coordinators now. And you've got a head coach that actively tried to get out and only is back because they wouldn't have him. That may not mean anything. You may be watching in week three and say, remember when folks thought that was going to be a big deal? Maybe that's the way it'll go. I'm quite literally telling you we don't know. There's another one on the quite literally chart. But after that, there's some things we do know. And we know, for instance, the coordinators are gone, but we also know they got both quarterbacks back. Uh, We know that last year, or at least we think we know, changed something about the psyche of this team. They did a lot of stuff last year that you were told, and they were told for a long time, they had just grown incapable of doing. And that was never the case. But yet, I guarantee you, some of the folks in that organization needed to see it be done to think it could be done. So 2022, 
what part of 2021 will be reflected? Will it be a lot of knocking down of Berlin walls and now everything is possible and they play like it because they saw that it could all be done and they just play with a sum greater than the individual part sort of mentality? If they're that, they can win the Big Ten again this year. They, they certainly can. But there's also the other possibility that in good conscience, you have to acknowledge. It could also be that they didn't get all the way back. They had some key losses. Let's talk about it now. Let's not just ignore the elephant in the room. They've got some key losses. They got some key big time role players defensively to replace, uh, coordinators to replace. But also, if Harbaugh didn't get himself and his program fully checked back in, then if that part of 2021 is reflected in 2022, they'll lose several games. And that game will be an afterthought for the rest of college football by the time they get to Columbus. Did they get to Ohio State with one loss? Max. If they can do that, then by that time, by nature of their record, they've shown you they're fully dialed in, and you will no longer go into that Ohio State-Michigan game thinking there's no chance, there's no shot. Ohio State will be favored. Uh, All the trappings will still be there to indicate Ohio State should win. The mentality that exists in that locker room is all I care about. So with that in mind, I gave this a seven. It's tough but not impossible for me to see Michigan repeating as Big Ten champ. But I'd be just as impressed if they go 10-2 and two this year and one of those losses is to Ohio State and the Buckeyes uh, beat them 42-27 to 27 en route to winning the Big Ten and headed to the playoff. If Michigan still finishes 10-2 and two, a year after all that stuff, after the season concluded last year, that'd still be a really, really good follow-up effort there on the heels of the Big Ten championship because they can't take that conference title away from you. We've got one that is, it brings me no joy. But John Yates says Brian Harson is going to be fired before early signing day this year. Early signing day is after the end of the regular season. It's before the bowls start. So it's mid-December. This is not that bold, unfortunately. I gave it a four. That's about how bold I think that is. I think that I just don't feel good about it. I don't feel good about where Auburn is right now. Uh, there are many parts of the program, let alone the team this year, that are really loose feeling. Uh, Brian Harson, I've been on record several times telling you how I feel about him. I, I thought he was done extremely wrong by some people around that and inside that program. Not most, just a few. And anyone around Auburn knows who I'm talking about. But that aside, there's still stuff you have to do. You've got to recruit, you've got to develop, and you've got to win enough games. And if they don't do that, it doesn't matter whether I like him. It doesn't matter whether he preaches the right things. If he's not delivering results and he does not have benefit of the doubt on his side because the same folks that got tossed out the window are just in the parking lot doing push-ups right now, they'll run right back up the stairs if he doesn't win eight-plus games, in my estimation, and they'll want him out of there. And they'll think they have justification. And then... You have to peel open that preview magazine and you have to look at who Auburn plays. It's the reason I say this is the toughest job in major college football because of the expectation blended with the annual challenge of the schedule they play. This is the only team that has to play Georgia every year that's in the West. They also just decided to add Penn State for good measure on their out-of-conference schedule this year. They play Penn State, LSU, at Georgia, at Ole Miss, Arkansas, at Mississippi State, Texas A&M, at Alabama. That is a tough five-year stretch, and they're going to do it in the span of three and a half months. 
Where in the world are the wins? You've got Mercer, you've got San Jose State, and there's Western Kentucky towards the end of the year. Uh, they don't play Vandy this year. Uh, games like Missouri are not a gimme W for them, even if it's home. There's just not. Not this year. They don't know who the quarterback is going to be there. They are picking from a very average quarterback room. They do not have the skill out wide. They can't break games open. Everything's got to go right. They got to play at an A minus or better level every week in conference play. And so, listen, if he gets that thing above seven wins this year, I don't want anyone to even sneeze at him because he has earned another year. Uh, you know, I always want him to have three years minimum, but that's not who makes the decision. I, I don't make the call there. The folks who make the call make the call, obvious statement. But you say Brian Harson's out of there, I, I say that's about a four on the boldness scale. What's the number? How many games does he have to win? That's kind of what I'd love to know. I'd love for someone who, who actually does pull the lever down there to tell me, how many games does he need? It's never that easy, though. Let's open the mailbag. Appreciate you guys being tuned in. Uh, they're tuned in in St. Louis. They are tuned in in Amarillo, Texas, probably by morning, too. And they're tuned in in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. We also had Bangkok, Thailand check in. And a city in Japan I couldn't pronounce. And I tried. But boy, I screwed up a town in Alabama last show. So I I'm just, I'm going to leave the Japan city on the shelf. And I'm going to get the pronunciation guide. I'll get Director Colin to help me. And we'll get that sorted out by Sunday. All right, the mailbag is open. Let's dive in. Appreciate you guys being tuned in. As I said, just wanted to submit something there in the live chat. First up, UT for Life asking, what is a Jai Hall going to do for my Texas Longhorns? I can't wait to see him this season with country sunshine Ewers. <laughs> Hashtag Pate State. Uh, Quinn Ewers, I do believe, will be the starting quarterback there. So a Jai Hall is the Alabama wide receiver transfer, former High four-star, five-star guy, depending on which service you looked at and which time you looked at it. Really good. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, we're showing footage from the spring game last year where Ajay Hall caught like 37 balls for a million yards and everyone, including me, thought he was setting himself up for a breakout freshman campaign. The reason that footage is important is because none of that's animated. That's all real. He does possess that physical ability. What is going to determine Ajay Hall's success this year? He is. That thing on top of his shoulders, that will determine how impactful he is at Texas. Here's the luxury. I know a lot of people have talked about the risk Sark is taking by bringing in a guy that could be a character red flag. I follow that up with the fact that you don't really know anything about him. Uh, Sark, I would imagine, did do his due diligence, but this is not a feast or famine thing. This is not a desperation Hail Mary attempt to get some offensive production. They got Jordan Whittington there. They got Xavier Worthy there. They got Isaiah Nair from Wyoming. They're okay at receiver. Now, whatever Ajay Hall adds, they got Billingsley from Alabama. Whatever he adds, that's going to be great. But that's a lot more icing on the cake than the cake itself. They do not need Ajay Hall. They desperately want him. He is an impact player. He has the physical potential to be the best receiver on that team. That includes Worthy. And you know how big a fan I am of him. But they don't need it. So that's the luxury. So I look forward to seeing it. I just, you, you can't know until you see it happen. It's going to be about two weeks into fall camp when that stuff starts sorting itself out and the live bullets start flying in those scrimmages there and it's behind closed doors. So everything is up in the air. It's not dressed up for TV. And you got to see how he handles it. You got to see how he's acclimating. They are overturning a culture there. I almost said it, quite literally, I almost said it, but I caught myself. 
Uh, they just overturned 40% of the roster. If you think Steve Sarkeesian is about to let a guy who is, who is running counter to that mission remain on that team, you're kidding yourself. He won't. Uh, so it's across your fingers, hope and see. There's always a little bit of risk with this. So I look forward to it. I, th I think he'll do good, but if he doesn't, it's not the end of the world for Texas. Let's go over to Baton Rouge. A question here about uh, quarterback. We're going we're gonna to be talking a lot about this. Let's just go ahead and get it out in the open. By the way, this question comes to us by way of financially responsible tiger prints. And whomst amongst us doesn't need one of those in our lives. He needs details for the LSU quarterback room. Nussmeyer looked like a dog in the spring game. Brian Kelly has so many options. Tell me how he won't choose wrong, dude. That's what Rusty Manziel calls me, so I must be one. This is a good spot to be in. They've got dependable depth. And the reason I say it's a good spot to be in, the worst spot to be in is having a bunch of average options to choose from. LSU's in a really good spot here coming out of spring. They've got a bunch of plus options to choose from at the quarterback position, including Jaden Daniels coming in. Of course, you've got Miles Brennan there. You've got Garrett Nussmeyer. We saw all of them in the spring. Uh, Brian Kelly's seen them throughout spring. It's a good problem to have. They've got more than one guy that theoretically they can win with. And then part two is there is no clear standout right now. It sounds like a bad thing, but that's a good thing because that ensures that most likely all of them are going to remain on campus. You won't have any portal exits in the middle of the night because guys see the writing on the wall. A lot of staffs out there are trying to manufacture the illusion of quarterback battles as far into the summer as they can. They don't have to. They got the real thing at LSU. Decision-making and accuracy will decide this competition. It's why I was never on that Jaden Daniels hype train as much as some people have been. Doesn't mean he can't win the job, but there's this misnomer out there that if you are an incoming transfer portal guy, if you portal into the program, you automatically have the benefit of the doubt. You don't. You come in to compete. There's not a prayer that Brian Kelly picked up his eye, Brian, and said, Jaden, if you come here now, even though I'm looking at Miles, looking at Nuss, they're both in the office with me, if you come here, it's your job to lose. That doesn't happen. In major college football, especially in a room where you actually have other warm bodies, that doesn't happen that way. My money would not be on Jaden Daniels being the starting quarterback for LSU, uh, but I wouldn't bet a lot of money. My money would be on either Miles Brennan or Garrett Nussmeyer. And the closer you get to the program, the better people talk about Garrett Nussmeyer. They know him better than anyone down there. Garrett Nussmeyer, just, it would not shock me as much as it would shock a lot of people to see him be the guy, ultimately, this year. But accuracy, poise, one of the hardest things to teach any quarterback, and decision-making. Those will be the hallmarks of the guy that eventually lands this job. I, I ever so slightly lean Miles Brennan over Garrett Nussmeyer. Ever so slightly, but that's going to change a lot. I think I'll flip my prediction like seven times. Let's move out west. Uh, interesting question here. It kind of ties back into how we led the show. Uh, Callie Surfbro hits me up. Said, love your show. Was it smart for Lincoln Riley and Dan Lanning to go to the Pac-12 with all the uncertainty around the future of the conference. Well, in light of the way we led the show tonight, that is a really, really good question to ask, especially in this show. I don't think head coaches can afford to think that way. Like, I don't think you can be Lincoln Riley if your heart is set on taking the USC job. Or if you're Dan Lanning and you've never had a head coaching job and you're the defensive coordinator at Georgia and a big job opens up at Oregon, 
they offer you and you stop and you talk to your agent and say, yeah, but what's the Pac-12 going to be three years from now, five years from now? You can't afford to do that. The game, at least as far as you're concerned, is not happening in five-year increments. It's happening day to day. It's right now. You got to make your decision now. And you just let the rest of the tumblers fall into place. Dan Lanning did the only thing he could do. You've got to take that job. Now, Lincoln Riley didn't have to take the job, but based on his desires, and that's all that matters here, quite frankly, he took the job. That's all he could do. He took the job that he wanted. Now, there was another quote that Notre Dame athletic director Jack Swarbrick gave in that interview that we've mentioned several times in this show to SI.com. And it was about conference realignment. And he said, and I quote, there are so many teams trying to get out of their current conference. They just can't all do it. If I were a betting man, if I were to load up the Ramen Noodle Express right here in the spring, I would say USC is probably one of those teams heavily exploring an exit. I would say Oregon is probably one of those teams. And if they're not, it would be in their best interest to be exploring that. So you just go, you keep your nose down, you worry about what you can control. Lincoln Riley can control the guys they take from the transfer portal through May 1st. Uh, Dan Lanning can control what kind of defense they run in Eugene. They can't control all this stuff. They don't know what's happening at the conference office day in and day out, nor do they need to be concerned about it. If the worst were to happen and those programs just cease to exist, those two guys could find work tomorrow. Worry about what you can control. Now, I don't have a great feel for the future of the Pac-12. How can you right now? Like, how can you feel good knowing what the projections are and knowing where the SEC and the Big Ten are headed and the gap that's going to be between them and everyone else? How can you feel good about it? But at the same time, how can you know that five or ten years from now, three years from now, that USC football will have a Pac-12 sticker on the helmet or Oregon football will have a Pac-12 sticker? Point is, we don't know. So worry about what you can control. Those are two really good programs. Those are two programs that I do not define as being in the Pac-12. You are not limited by the sticker on your helmet, by the conference that you reside in. Um, you're, you're, you're at a place in Eugene or LA where they're giving you everything you need to win, everything you need to compete. The blueprint is there to recruit the way you need to. And both of those guys can get it done. Dan Landing can absolutely get it done at Oregon. Lincoln Riley can absolutely get it done at USC. Don't really care what people think may happen seven years from now. Moving on, interesting follow-up, and this is something I always love talking about. James asked, what specifically makes home field advantage matter more in college than in the NFL? There are several things. This is a really good question because everyone just says home field advantage, and it, it's kind of like word salad. It just all jumbles itself together. There's a big difference. So think it through with me. If you're a college football player, there's a lot of firsts that you're experiencing. So in college, the environments are louder. The stadiums are bigger. I think the passion per capita in that stadium is far more intense than it is in most pro stadiums. So number one, it's just a lot more intimidating an atmosphere to go into. And then the second part is a lot of the guys going in are doing it for the first time. And even if they're not, even if they're seniors, you just don't have a lot of that experience under your belt. You got nine year veterans in the NFL who have played in front of, at that point, like tens of millions of people combined over their careers, and it's second nature to them. There is nothing second nature for a 19-year-old kid about playing in Baton Rouge, Louisiana on a Saturday night. There's just not. People tell you, oh, you get used to it. You don't get used to it. That's like people who play in the Big Ten saying, yeah, it's going to be minus three at kickoff, but our guys are used to it. 
No, they're not. Half your recruits are from Florida, and they train during the summer. No one gets used to playing in minus three weather. No one gets used to playing in front of 103,000 people either. So that's part two. But part three, and the part you don't get to see, but the part that fascinates me the most, is unlike the NFL, there is a legit disadvantage in terms of the amenities and the actual infrastructure that is afforded to a road team in most major college stadiums. And I always use Auburn because I think it's the best example that I've observed. At Auburn, you've of course got the palatial locker room and everything looks great for the home team. It's right there, easy access to the field. For the road team, and I want you to keep in mind how big the teams that play Auburn are, Alabama, Georgia, LSU. If you could see how deep these teams travel, the team itself, the roster, but then you've got the support staff and you've got analysts and you've got nutritionists and you've got trainers. They have like, it looks like hundreds and hundreds of people. They pull five buses in there to carry their entire support staff. And then you got some folks who have already shown up before the game. The locker rooms aren't big enough. They can't fit everything they need to carry in the locker rooms. So if you're at Auburn, I've been down there dozens of times. I always love to go outside the road locker room because there is not enough room. There's just spill out all over this little platform that's back there. It's underneath the stadium, kind of in the bowels of the stadium. And so you've got, especially at halftime, you got some guys that don't even go in the locker room. They're just spilled out into the corridor there and it's dark and you got grease boards, you got position units talking and you've got guys getting retaped and you got guys just pouring Gatorade down their throat, eating pickles, everything you do to stay hydrated during a football game. And when you try and make your way back to the field, unlike the road or unlike the home side, the road side is a single file tunnel. You can't even walk next to a dude. It's single file. Now, do the math. How long does it take to get an entire football team off the field single file and back on the field single file versus what you deal with down there in the home accommodations? What did you buy yourself there? You may have bought yourself two and a half to three more minutes of halftime adjustments, however you define that, than your opponent there. How many points is that worth in a game? I have no idea. I just know it matters. And I mentioned Auburn because that's a, a specifically hostile place to go in and play. That stuff doesn't exist in the NFL. Like the worst road locker rooms in the NFL are still fine. No one ever complains about that stuff. And if they do, it gets collectively bargained with the league and it's just taken care of. It's not a problem. You would not be allowed to run the Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta that way. They wouldn't allow it. Plus, uh, these, some of these new stadiums have like five or six locker rooms. That's how they host events like the NCAA tournament where you have multiple basketball teams in there. Uh, that's how they host state playoff games for high school, where they have multiple teams in the building at the same time. How do they pull it off? They got more than two locker rooms. So it's not a problem in the pro game. And I'm not calling it a problem in the college game. I'm calling it legitimate home field advantage in the college game. I, I do my best when I'm on the road to take the eye, Josh, and give you guys footage of that. If you follow on Instagram, at Josh. You see, I post a lot of that in the Instagram story. You just have to be watching on Saturdays. But always fascinating, those, those road accommodations or lack thereof. Like you think Iowa painting the locker room pink is a home field advantage? No, imagine not even being able to see the locker room because you can't get into it. That's home field advantage. I, I hope nothing ever changes on that front. I love that. Next up, this one's going to probably surprise some people. Carmen asked, which cities have been your favorite to host national championship games? Checking in from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. 
Well, you're going to like the first answer here, Carmen. New Orleans is my favorite city to host the big games, host championship games, college football playoff games. It's a city that's built to host events. People just happen to live in it. Everything is perfectly set up. Those folks could yawn while they host these national championship games and Super Bowls at this point. They just got it down to a science. Uh, there's footage of Santa Clara, California, which was my worst experience, really through no fault of theirs. It's just not a place that has any business hosting a college football playoff or championship game. But New Orleans is wonderful. All the folks down there treat you great. It has a unique culture unto any other city in America. I mean, those of you who have just visited New Orleans know that. Now imagine them turning the volume up to 11 as they host a major event, like some of the biggest boxing matches in history, uh, pro wrestling, uh, obviously Super Bowls, Final Fours, and college football playoff national championships. Like They've all been held there and they rotate through there every few years because it is, to me, the best host city in America. They're just perfectly built for it. And here's another important part of it that gets overlooked, unless you're there. The city of New Orleans embraces its role as a host. Now that sounds like it could be taken for granted. Don't, because I've been to cities where they do not embrace that. Just mentioned one a second ago, where the event, yeah, true enough, it's happening in the city, but the rest of the city is just going about its business. Dude, in New Orleans, when they're hosting a big event, they take pride in it. They all kind of play their part, like the community there, they hit pause on whatever's going on in their personal lives, and all eyes and focus are on that big event. I've been down there for the playoffs. I've been down there for national championship. They do it right. New Orleans is basically the poster child uh, by which everybody else measures themselves. But I got another one for you, and this just happened in the past three or four months. Indianapolis was incredible. I had such low expectations only because, as the folks there will tell you, I hadn't been there for a major event before. That was, that was on me. So I had... Listen to people gripe and complain because they, like us, covering the Georgia game, we were going to be in Miami for the semifinal, then we're going to go with the freezing cold weather in Indianapolis. Well, you know when that doesn't matter? When you never have to step outside. In downtown Indianapolis, the Circle City, it's also perfectly constructed to host major events. Everything's connected by Skybridge. You go from your hotel to all the restaurants, you never step outside if you don't want to. You go from your hotel to where all the media is set up, where the media suites are set up, all the food, you never have to go outside if you don't want to. You walk from your hotel room, like I could walk outside my hotel door at the Marriott and walk indoors into the stadium and never walk outside. Doesn't matter if it's 50 degrees below zero. And much like New Orleans, Indianapolis fully embraced the role as a host city. They took immense pride in it. Also, the stakes are incredible. So Indianapolis, I mean, I talked about it at the time. I just want to reiterate it. Like those folks did it right. I would absolutely go back. I, I know they're talking about moving the combine all around and out of Indianapolis and stuff. And I, the first thing I, I thought about was why? Think about how centrally located everything is. And then I heard all those NFL GMs and scouts and whatnot say, if you move this out of Indianapolis, I'm not even showing up. They had fallen in love with having that thing in Indianapolis. So that place is, is a great uh, place to host. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, how are you choosing, given the option, to go to Indianapolis, Indiana over Miami? Well, they talked about hosting a game. I've, I love Miami. My affinity for South Florida is well known on this show. If I'm moving anywhere, it's gonna be to South Florida. 
but you got to drive a pretty good ways because we normally stay in Fort Lauderdale or the surrounding area and the stadium's like 30 minutes down the road. So you got to drive around a little bit down there. It's not the worst place in the world to be driving around, mind you. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't want my parents driving on I-95 down there, actually, now that I think about it. But point remains, very picturesque. It's like a screensaver, but you just, you got to invest a little more time to get around. If I were vacationing, yeah, probably going to choose South Florida over Central Indiana. And you guys would too, so I don't even need to say all due respect. But as for a host city, I'm there to work anyway. Give me Indianapolis. I went to both cities back to back within the span of a week, and I, I was just overly impressed. Still a lot of love for South Florida too. So uh, the over hit tonight, but we did not go an hour. We only went 54 minutes. Uh, we had, I just want to thank you guys on the back end of the show. We had a show the other night, and in fact, we've had about a three-week stretch now that's blown everyone's mind around here. I don't know how else to say it. We're doing better traffic than we did at almost any point during the football season last year, where we did ridiculous traffic. So um, us data guys would call it the hockey stick effect, but that little portion of the hockey stick where it just ramps up really hard, really fast, that's kind of where we are as a show, which obviously means... Hey, we're looking forward to a lot of things around here. Um, I've got a lot of things to get straightened out professionally. I think I've been pretty clear there. But once we do, then we can chart the rest of the course throughout the summer and the fall. Uh, there are a lot of things happening here. So it can't happen without you. Thank you. Unlike the NCAA and conference commissioners, we won't take the fans for granted because we quite literally don't exist without you. So thank you guys so much. Uh, there was a man's name that I did not mention on the show tonight that I had a pretty high profile back and forth with in the digital media space today. And I'm going to wrap the show without also mentioning that man's name. Just because I didn't think he deserved it, we'll wait for a lesser profile show to mention that. So we'll just wrap it up with saying the name Director Colin, thanks to him. Producer Jesse, thanks to him. The production executives, thanks to all them. And thanks most specifically to you. We're not here Thursday. We're back Sunday, but we will get you a podcast in the podcast feed on Thursday. Until then... For everyone here, I'm Josh Bates. Have yourselves a great rest of your evening, and God bless.